Hello and welcome to Quilletubit's Market Uncut podcast, your weekly insight into the topics and issues that we have been discussing here at Quilletubit. Remember, so you don't miss future episodes, be sure to hit the follow button on whichever streaming platform you are listening on, or by following hashtag QC Weekly Comment on LinkedIn. I'm Andrew Cartwright, investment manager based out of our Birmingham office, and this week I'm delighted to be joined by regular commentator and head of fixed interest, Richard Carter, and Carly Morehouse, our Asia and Emerging Markets Fund Research Specialist. Welcome, Richard and Carly, and it was great to have you both up in Birmingham over the past few weeks presenting at various events. So last week was busy in terms of GDP, employment and inflation updates, public sector pay announcements, property surveys, but has anything really changed? Well, we certainly had some positive news coming out of the US when on Wednesday, the latest US report showed that inflation for June had fallen by slightly more than expected from 4% to 3% and down to its lowest level since March 2021. As discussed on previous occasions, this trend is in contrast to other developed economies and notably the UK, where inflation remains stubbornly high at 8.7%. This would certainly welcome news and the US uh, equity markets, or at least those very large technology companies involved in artificial intelligence, continue to rise strongly. The dollar weakened against most of the major currencies, including sterling, and bond prices rallied. But we've often heard Richard comment on a different measure of inflation, and notably making reference to core inflation, which excludes certain key items such as food and energy costs. The decline in the core inflation rate for June was more modest, falling from 5.3% to 4.8%, and still well above the Federal Reserve Bank's 2% core inflation target. So Richard, there's still quite some way to go before that core inflation target is reached, and Federal Reserve officials are indicating that there could be another couple of rate rises still to come, including at next week's meeting on the 25th of July. So did this inflation report really give financial markets reasons to be buoyant, or is it still just too early to think that, at least in the US, the end of the interest rate tightening cycle is in sight? No, I, I think, Andrew, we should um, we should definitely welcome this report. And, and we've had, you know, we've had several months now you know, or longer of, of bad inflation news. But actually, I think we should be um, quite honest and straightforward and welcome this one because it does look like headline inflation now is falling back to a level that we can be almost comfortable with. Three you know, 3% doesn't sound too much, does it? Um, and you're right, there is some way to go on. Uh, core inflation is still a bit too high for comfort. Uh, but some of the underlying details in the report suggest you know, things like service sector inflation, which has been a kind of a bit of a concern, being quite sticky. Even then, in those areas, it does seem to be you know, coming off the boil a little bit. So as you say, um, not quite there yet, but I think it really was a report where we could start to think, you know what, the, the end is nearly in sight for the um, rate hiking cycle, or, or so we hope. So there's, there's been quite a big rally in um, bond yield since the report. Uh, market only thinks probably you know one more uh, quarter point rise from the the Fed and that will be it. So um, it, it's a different story in the UK, that's for sure. But um, yeah, the US seems to make, be making some good progress. And in in the UK, the Office for National Statistics reported that GDP fell by 0.1% between April and May, which was better than the 0.3% decline in economic activity forecast. And on the same day, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak announced a final offer for 
public sector pay increases of between 5 to 7% in what is a difficult balancing act to help public sector workers without adding to the inflationary pressures through the need for increased government borrowing. And a large part of those pay increases will need to be covered by cost savings elsewhere. And the main teachers union support the pay rise, but junior doctors have since begun strike action as they seek a far higher settlement. And this announcement followed an update on the jobs market earlier in the week, which showed that the UK unemployment rate has risen slightly to 4.4%, but that wage growth still remains high at 7.3%. And this was stronger than expected and is still adding to inflation worries in the UK. And, and Richard touched upon the property market in last week's podcast with Edward Lloyd. And since then, the Royal Institute of Charter Surveyors, or, or RICS, issued their property market update. And the report stated that housing demand and prices across the UK had fallen and that the house price balance, which is the difference between percentage of surveyors seeing rises and falls in house prices, was at its lowest reading since April 2009. And as mortgage costs have continued to rise sharply when average house prices widely anticipated to fall further, the outlook for the housing market is looking pretty gloomy. And that sentiment is certainly being reflected in the share price of the house building sector. And hopefully we can talk more about this with our property research analyst, Ollie Creasy, in the coming weeks. As mentioned, the UK gilt market also rallied last week following the lead of the US bond markets, despite the prospect that UK interest rate increases could still have some way to go. And according to the futures markets, could rise by at least another percentage point by early next year. The various reports and updates from last week on GDP, job and property front don't really seem to suggest that any meaningful improvement for the outlook of the UK is imminent. So Richard, were you surprised to see the UK gilt and bond markets rally last week? And was there anything in those various reports and updates announced last week that might give you grounds for optimism or indeed further concern? No, I think, Andrew, I don't think it was really too much of a surprise that the um, gilt market rallied. And like you said, it was kind of following uh, what was happening in the US, uh, you know, with the with the big drop in inflation, and that's and that's normal. You tend to see quite a big correlation between uh, US Treasury and, and uh, UK gilt markets, even though you know we've still we've clearly got some months before uh, inflation gets down, in the UK gets down to the sort of levels we're now uh, seeing in the US. And I, I think I, overall, I wouldn't say the UK data is brilliant. But uh, at least it doesn't seem like we're, we've sort of in, gone into recession uh, yet. Although you know, the more the Bank of England raises rates, the the bigger risk that becomes. Um, but like you said, the, the news from the um, the housing market you know doesn't look good. Uh, mortgage rates are obviously very very high now, and, and some of the leading indicators, and you mentioned the RIC survey, uh, are pointing in a pretty pretty gloomy gloomy direction. So um, overall, you know, not doesn't look brilliant for UK. But then you know. Hope, you know, hopefully, if we do sort of see some weakness in the UK, then the gilt market um, should benefit from from that as it as it, as it did last week. And whilst we had a bit of a rally in bond prices last week, UK gilt and bond yields have been rising very steadily over the course of 2023, as bond prices have continued to fall back fall on the back of interest rate expectations. And, and despite the uptick, the underlying trend has continued in July, and bond yields are around the highest level since the financial crisis, and arguably now offer a viable alternative to equities, at least over the short term. Richard, in, in view of the recent developments in bond markets, you have been involved in establishing a new tax-efficient short-term bond strategy here at Quidditchiviet. And could you tell us a bit more about that strategy and who might benefit from it? Yes, that's right. I mean, you know, obviously we've had this, you know, as you say, big rise in interest rates, but now you've got 
situation in short-term you know, UK government bonds, where you can get some pretty attractive, uh, pretty attractive yields. You know, above you know, if you go out sort of one, two, three-year uh, government bonds, you know, above five percent. Um, and um, you know, if people are sort of sat with money um, on deposit in banks, not not getting anywhere sort of near that, then then these uh, potential uh, these government bond yields are potentially uh, quite attractive. And there is a particular sort of nuance around um, gilts, which, which from a tax efficient tax efficiency uh, point of view, can make sense because if you buy the right gilts, um, you you, so you don't pay you don't pay capital uh, get you don't pay capital gains tax on the on the um, uplift in the in the bond price between when you buy it and, and maturity. Uh, so all you're doing is is paying income tax. Uh, on the coupon and if you buy very low coupon bonds the actual uh, after tax yield uh, is 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 still very attractive you know even for sort of 45% uh, tax pay it can be over 5% so as you say we we've launched a new strategy in this area uh, and i think basically anyone who's uh, looking to put money uh, away for sort of one to three years and and do better than um, you know, potentially deposits uh, it's it should be uh, it should be a pretty attractive uh, opportunity. Thank you, Richard. And, and if anyone would like further information about that strategy, please do get in touch with your investment manager or or use your quarter Chibiot contact. And, and one of the key investment themes that was widely expected to feature during the course of 2023 was based around the reopening of the Chinese economy after their severe and prolonged COVID lockdown measures. But China's GDP only increased by 0.8% over the second quarter, and the Asian equity markets had a notable downturn. The MSCI Developed Asia Index was down 4.5%, and the broader MSCI Asia Pacific Japan Index was down 3.6%. Carly, it looks as though that much that, that much anticipated post-COVID recovery in China has yet to uh, take hold in, in any meaningful way. And that may, of course, take a while to filter through uh, to the economic data. But given the forward-looking nature of equity markets, we do often see a rebound in anticipation of an improving outlook even if the upturn has yet to materialize. So, so what are your observations and thoughts as to what's been going on in China? And is, is this still an investment theme that is being backed? Yeah, so while the recovery is happening, many are still cautious on China. The majority of portfolio managers I've spoken to can see the opportunities there, but they've highlighted how negative sentiment has been and continues to be, and, and many are just reluctant to be heavily overweight. With index allocations to China being close to 30%, even being in line um, with that is you know, a big chunk of your portfolio. None have said that China is uninvestable, though, which I think is a big thing to point out, as that was the question everyone was asking back in November. But the risk premium for the market has clearly increased, and the opportunity set has narrowed somewhat as people try and stay away from areas and, and sectors where there could be a potential for government intervention or where the US could impose sanctions or, or trade tariffs or something similar. But there are still good companies in China that will continue to benefit from all the types of long-term structural trends happening in the country that investors have been positive on for many years. These are mainly trends around the consumer, like local brands, um, premiumization, just really beneficiaries of the move of millions of people into the middle class. It's no secret that consumption has been weaker than expected since the zero COVID policy was removed back in November. 
portfolio managers have uh, been highlighting how sentiment isn't just negative outside of China, but also on the ground. So the economy isn't in a great place and youth employment, unemployment, sorry, is high. And given that many people in China can only really remember the economy going up during their lifetimes, and now they're seeing some real issues, they are understandably more negative and, and more reluctant to go out and spend than pre-pandemic when the economy was much stronger. This isn't um, an issue that the very wealthy population in China have, by the way. That part of the market are spending and boosting the luxury goods companies. This issue is more relevant to the more um, you know, mass market areas. But you know, overall, this weak consumer confidence is just something that will take time to restore. People have the money in China. They were saving all throughout the pandemic. They're just being a bit more cautious today. And it will most likely require help from the government to see a big shift in sentiment on the ground. So far, we've seen some pretty um, lackluster stimulus as the government are still wary of deploying a huge stimulus package, given what it did after they used this approach during the GFC. But we're hearing rumours of more targeted stimulus for certain areas like property and infrastructure, which would certainly help. Just on the topic of property, you know, that sector has continued to be weak. And we know from um, the drama that the Evergrande default created that you know, property is a really important part of the market. It's about 25 percent of GDP. So you know, as the risk of properties not being finished continues to worry buyers, um, demand has really slowed and, and prices are falling. And, and because there is already a vast amount of supply sitting empty, the sector is struggling in a big way. But I think the fact of the matter is that many were overly optimistic when the zero COVID policy was removed. And now many people are overly pessimistic. It's not that the recovery is uh, the economy isn't recovering. It is but just slower than many anticipated. And you know the market is really being punished for that. You can see it in how the market hasn't really been impacted by anything in, in the past um, you know, that would have been taken well, um, you know, such as these visits to China by heads of international companies and, and more recently US officials. And things coming out of these meetings have seemingly been good, but there's not been any sustainable impact to markets. Um, you can also see it in the way that share prices have reacted even when company results have been overall positive, some stocks have actually fallen. Um, but where this is the case, managers are still holding on to these companies and, you know, where appropriate, adding as the share prices are just not reflecting fundamentals at all, which is you know, actually a great opportunity for patient long term investors. So um, quite a long way of saying that, yes, it is still an investment theme that's being backed, but in a much more, I guess, selective way. And we also saw emerging market equities uh, fall during that second quarter, and the MSCI index was down uh, almost 2%. But overall, they fared better than the Asian equity markets. And currently, some of your preferred emerging market funds actually provided a, a positive return. But when we look under the bonnet of most emerging market funds, we, we see that they are predominantly invested in, in Asia. And it's often a very large overlap between Asia and emerging market funds, and so much so that as, an, as investment managers, we often view them as going hand in hand. And Carly, we've seen quite a variation and even divergence in the short-term performance of, of Asia emerging market equities and some of your favorite emerging market funds. And even when, within the Asian indices, there's been uh, notable differences. So what's been happening across the wider Asia and emerging market region that might explain th these differences? The broader Asia-Pacific X-Trend Index um, is lagging the MSCI EM index for a few reasons. 
So you know, firstly, Korea and Taiwan are slightly larger weights in the EM index and, and those more tech heavy markets have done well this year. We know um, AI optimism has, has certainly played a big part in that. Additionally, some parts of Latin America like Brazil and uh, even more so Mexico have been strong year to date. Brazil's done well as the market gets more comfortable with Lula as president and the increasing prospect for rate cuts. And Mexico's done well as it's continued to benefit from increased reshoring given the proximity to the US. So um, these are areas that have been quite a boost for emerging markets over Asia. Additionally, as China has been weak, so has Hong Kong, and Hong Kong sits in the Asian index as opposed to emerging markets. But specifically within our funds, a lot of performance has been determined simply by their China allocation. You know, are they over or underweight? But also within that China exposure, what are the funds holding? So being overweight, China has clearly been a drag this year, and even more so if you have some of the large internet platforms, which have almost become China proxies. So if a fund holds overweight positions in the Chinese e-commerce names, specifically um, you know, JD.com and Meituan, um, then they will have struggled this year. And if your China exposure is less concentrated in these names, um, then uh, yeah, you um, you won't have uh, you know struggled as much. But you know, it it really depends on on the stock specifics as to whether a manager has been able to offset some of of that underperformance from allocation. Additionally, I think where emerging market funds have benefited over Asian funds is from that Latin American exposure, which I mentioned before. You know, large allocations to these areas would have been beneficial, and our funds that have quite a bit of exposure here have certainly fared better. And um, just finally, while growth has significantly outperformed value this year in places like the US, that's not the same case in Asia and emerging markets. You know, value and, and the more cyclical areas of the market are still outperforming growth this year in Asia and EM. So if a fund is more value biased, uh, then they will have also benefited. So thank you, Carly, and, and to Richard for those great insights today, and to you all for listening. Did you enjoy our discussions on the podcast today? We love to hear from our listeners, so please review the show now wherever you're listening and share it on your socials and tag us at Quilt To make sure you don't miss a future episode, tap the subscribe button. We'll be back next week, and in the meantime, head over to our website, www.quiltachieviate.com, where you can read the accompanying market overview as well as subscribe to our weekly comment newsletter. You can also stay up to date with our thoughts on market news, industry insights, and our upcoming events and webinars on our website or our social media pages. And just to bring to your attention an up and coming event, please do join Amisha Chohan, head of the small cap strategy at Quill Achieve It, on Wednesday, 26 July at 9 a.m. Amisha will be talking to David Butler with an update about the developments in the A market over the last quarter. And in the UK, uh, Small cap market has notably underperformed larger companies in recent times, and valuations are now well below their historical average. Amisha will be discussing what will drive the UK small cap market to rebound, and with all the news around artificial intelligence, how companies in this market are responding to developments in this technology. So head over to the events page on our website to register for the online webinar. Finally, if you have any questions you'd like to ask one of our experts for our next podcast, then simply ask them via the weekly comments page on our website. We'd love to hear your questions. And that's it for today. So thank you again to Richard and Carly for your time and to you all for listening. See you next time. <laughs>